Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. It's Friday, February 9th, 2024, from Peach Fish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I have been interested lately in the liquefied natural gas decisions. The Biden administration just recently deciding to stop or disallow the terminals that were to supply liquefied natural gas to the world. The freeze of liquefied natural gas interests me because it's all states of matter. You got your freezing liquids, that's your solids, and then you got your liquefied, and then you got your gas. And if I watch this on a plasma TV, I'm totally covered. But really why I'm interested in the freeze of liquefied natural gas is I have a question. Will it do anything? Yes, I know it will stop American companies from making liquefied natural gas, but we're still producing oil. We're still producing some coal. The world's producing a lot of coal, less than they used to, but a lot of it. Lots of oil in the world. And the world has its needs for energy. If they're not going to get it from LNG, they're going to get it from somewhere. And the somewhere, if it's coal, is much worse for the environment than LNG. If it's oil, I think oil's worse for the environment. I think it's definitely worse, but maybe the newest research is, depending on whether you look at uh, methane or CO2, it's just a little worse. And it's certainly true that solar, oh, sainted solar, and wind are much better. But just because we can't produce or the United States is disallowing the production of liquefied natural gas does not mean, and I've never seen any study or anyone compellingly prove that this will certainly mean that there'll be more solar or wind energy supplied. It seems a little or a lot a bit of wishful thinking. This was the state of my analysis of the LNG question. But then the Wall Street Journal issued a report just yesterday. And the point of the report, I mean, it was a straight ahead report in the Wall Street Journal, but it was certainly pointing the fingers or at least tracing how politics and big wealthy donors influence the Biden administration to disallow the production of LNG. The headline was how the Rockefellers and billionaire donors pressured Biden on LNG exports. So this wasn't necessarily simply a decision that the Biden administration made because it had an assessment of the environment and just wanted to do the right thing. It was pressured by, quote, billionaire-backed companies. The Rockefellers, Bloomberg, Jeff Bezos's Hive Fund for Climate and Gender Justice. And I know the 
takeaway from this was supposed to be, oh, those nefarious billionaires who've got their hooks into the Democrats. That was not my takeaway. My takeaway, even though this report and the analysis of the report was meant to delegitimize the administration's decision, to me, it legitimized it. Because for the first time, I said, maybe there really is something to the idea that if you don't allow the terminals to get built, there'll be less LNG and that will be better for the environment. I seriously doubted that. But when Bloomberg gets involved, yes, I know the Rockefellers, they're very, you know, Gen Z activist-y. And I don't know what's going on with Bezos's hive mind for climate and gender justice. I know it's the hive fund. See, I said hive mind. I did something there. But when Michael Bloomberg and the Bloomberg philanthropies get involved, there's usually data to back it up. This guy insists that Everything that he and his companies have a hand in have some actual effect on the world. So I have to say, this report in the Wall Street Journal had a weird effect, a Streisand-like effect of saying, huh, maybe the Biden administration and the activists are on to something. Less LNG, better for the environment for some reason other than the activists said so. It's a dirty business, all this clean fuel, but maybe there is something more solid to liquefying the liquefied natural gas portfolio than I had previously imagined. On the show today, scattered pictures like the corners of a special prosecutor's report, misty, watercolored, hard to conjure, useful under oath in a prosecution depending on mens rea, memories of the way Joe Biden wasn't. Don't worry, thus ends the singing portion of the show. But we go now to our interview and the conclusion of DEI Week. It really flew by, and we got to all the answers, or we will after our talk with Denise Hamilton, DEI expert and author of the new book, Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future. Denise Hamilton, up next. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. 
We're back with Denise Hamilton, author of Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future. And Denise, I would like to talk about the use of an identity lens as the means of identifying problems and solving problems at the exclusion of other factors. Specifically, let's talk about the racial wealth gap. Now, the analysis of the racial wealth gap does depend, and this is true, on looking at things like redlining and the inability to own homes and to see those homes increase in values because the number one way we acquire wealth is through home ownership builds wealth and then inheritance passes that wealth on. Now, if it is the case, and it is, that 66% of black babies born in the United States are only born to a single parent, and this is more than double the rate of uh, other races and white people, much more than double the rate, it means that for every black child, you've halved the possibility of inheriting wealth. And I know the racial wealth gap is lessening and improving. And I know that there are reasons in the tax code why single parenthood might have been adopted by black people, but also, and all people, but also there are sociological reasons. But it is a fact that the large, the disproportionate rate of single parenthood in the black community has a big effect on the wealth gap. And I find it to be almost never talked about But instead, it's much more comfortable through the lens of DEI to focus on the identity aspects that are promulgating the racial wealth gap. And I do wonder if this is really the best way to actually solve the problem. Right. So and 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 your your observation is a is a powerful one. I would punctuate it differently. Like you said, how you transfer wealth is through inheritance. Black people couldn't even have wills. Yeah, I know. With, and like there was you, could, you literally could not transfer wealth from generation to generation. Right. Redlining, the inability right. to kind of build wealth in your home. So what do we do Being about that? Being excluded from the GI line. Bill that yeah. built the middle class and home ownership. Like, right. That's a, this is the explanation to, for where we are now. So what's the solution? Mass, and then we look at mass incarceration of black men, right? And so what did that do to homes? We look at how the crack epidemic was handled and look at, look at the difference between how how crack has been handled and how fentanyl is being handled. It's a health emergency. It's a crisis. It's a totally different framework. So like you have this preponderance of situations that have put us in this condition. And I think sometimes it's like, it's, it's, you know, we, we do this a lot in our, in, in how we think about government. We like socialize the losses, but individualize the gains, right? Like, you know, and, and I, and I think it's really important to kind of say, why, how did we get here? So you can say, yeah, we need to really address single motherhood, single parent households. What are we going to do to do that? What, do, what are the suggestions that we have? Can we support childcare policies? Head Start. There's there's suggestions that are being made all the time that get voted down. So th- that's the. Th- I think there's a. We have to be. We have to all all of us be more open to hearing your very fair assessment of like what are we going to do about the sociological piece of this. And my very fair assessment is what are we going to do about the forces that got us to this point? And what does correction look like? And I think we have to be very careful not to be like, they just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. No, no. No, we need to figure out what are the interventions that are going to provide assistance? What are the interventions that are going to make this better? That's exactly what I'm saying. How did we get here? 
racism played a major role, systemic, mm-hmm. individual, de jure, de facto. Yeah. And now we haven't cured all of that. There are definitely vestiges. But I think the people who are looking to solve these problems today say racism got us here. Therefore, it is likely that racism is what is perpetuating the system. Now we could define racism in different ways. But I would say, rather than looking through a diversity, equity, and inclusion solution for these systems, we should start looking for other solutions. Because while it's true that racism got us here, I don't think the continued focusing on racism or the exclusion, the de jure exclusion of black people is the most likely place to find the way forward. And I think that if you look at the racial wealth gap narrowing, the things that are contributing to that aren't primarily DEI focused. Hmm. It's an interesting take. Um, So what should we do? What we should do is have, <laughs> thank you. I am so glad you asked. <laughs> See, that's very good. That's good. Lara, um, listen, ask, respond. <laughs> no, listen, acknowledge, respond, ask questions. I think that what we should do, and this is going on, is to correctly diagnose what the obstacles are to narrowing gaps. Let's take, for instance, the maternal death rate. There are a number of interventions that the state of California took in terms of lessening maternal death rate among black Californians, and they empirically measured how much placenta was lost in a delivery. And they're not just eyeballing it or estimating it and allowing their biases to interplay, but they would just weigh it. And if it was a certain uh, ounces, they would have a cart and the cart would be brought in. And uh, this intervention prevented hemorrhaging and it really worked. It revolutionized and very much improved exponentially the maternal death rate figures. Now California compares favorably to many European countries among the maternal death rate of uh, black women. And there's, no, now I will say, and I'll get to my question in a second. If you look at how they talk about it, there is a lot of verbiage about racism and internal biases and things like this. But what they actually did was to actually look at the empiricism of the placenta, but what they that's what they really did. They didn't look internally about doctors' opinions. I think interventions like those are the best chance, the best way forward versus so much of the material I read, which talks about why do black women die in childbirth soon thereafter? Are black babies more likely to die than white newborns? And there are many factors. One is obesity, one is childcare, one is the fact that two-thirds of black women giving birth don't have married partners, don't have a husband. Um, There are reasons for that, but it is also the case. And then, and to, sorry, I'm putting a lot on you, but I always read studies that talk about how black pain is ignored, and they frequently cite this 2014 study about how medical residents in their first or second year have uh, are ignorant about black pain, but this does get corrected by the time they graduate college. But still, that one study, that one really oddly phrased and weird study, gets cited everywhere because we it seems like we need evidence that uh, our obstetricians, but maybe not our other kind of doctors, ignore black pain. Okay. I'm going knowledge that there are racism components to this and 
because there are racism components to everything in American society. But if we want to weigh you forward, what we have to do is something more like what California actually did, which is to look at the problem, think of the solutions, marry the solutions to the problem, and not get bogged down in these uh, feelings and attitudes that are absolutely present and are worth exploring, but just aren't part of the solution. So that's, that's what I, 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 I I'm, I'm struggling with the either or. Like, the reality is the issue was raised because of a sensitivity to inclusion issues. That's why the whole, we wouldn't even be talking about this if people didn't say, hey, we have a problem in this community. It's been influenced by these issues and these impacts, and we need to figure it out. Like, so it's not either or. To me, it's both. I, I, and I, and I'm, I don't know what, I think that we've made DEI mean something. Like we've given it a definition that it doesn't really have. All it is, is just like, how do we address inequities? How do we address these problems that may come through communities of difference? That's all it is. So to me, it's like, you're, you're giving me an example of my, of my position. (laughs) And even if you look at states that like one of the biggest indicators of maternal mortality rate is if there are black doctors in that community, which I think is a very interesting statistic. If you have a lot of black doctors in a community, you have a much lower maternal mortality rate. Why? That's about race. That's not about empirical, like that's not about the placenta and the water in the, like it's not. So I think that there's, they're like, they're both. We have to kind of consider these variables and then find the science and the solutions that address it. And that's optimal to me. It's not an either or. We all want to try to figure out how to get to solutions. What are we going to do to do that? Yeah. So about the uh, black newborns, I've read that study and um, it's based on, I think, some Florida statistics from the 90s and early aughts. And they did show that black doctor, white doctor, black newborns still have worse outcomes no matter what, but they are halved if they are treated by black doctors. The maternal mortality part is unaffected by the race of the doctor from the studies I've read. But I totally agree with you. Racism should not be we shouldn't have blinders on to it. We should take it into account. Maybe you and I just perceive how large an issue it looms in trying to solve these problems. It also mm. seems to me that racism is an almost impossible problem to solve if you attack it as racism. It's shape-shifting. We keep redefining what yep. racism means. And maybe that's good. Like maybe we you know, now have an, an understanding that it's not just bigotry, it's systemic. But I think, you know, in my perception, so much of the literature that I read about, especially I've read so much about black women mortality, uh, maternal mortality, it's so much emphasis on the racism part. And I don't see any solutions there, right? Mm -hmm. I read articles about an obstetrician who sees a black woman in her waiting room. Maybe you read this story and her mind goes to a cartoon a racist cartoon, ridiculous stuff in in uh, prominent scientific publications. And I kind of despair because that to me seems a giant waste of time versus these mm-hmm. actual interventions that are doing something and saving women's lives. Yeah, You're right. I, think the, yeah. I think the problem that we have is that, you know, neither you or I are going to shape these discussions. You are. (laughs) You wrote indivisible. Well, well, but they're happening, you know, ad hoc, 
we're redefining words. As soon as a word is, is put into the, to the, um, the, the ecosystem, it is bastardized and turned into something else. Like, like the, the sheer speed and proliferation of information has made this these really nuanced conversations so difficult. And I always like remind myself that somebody makes money off of me disagreeing with you, uh-huh. right? It's more, it's more fun. It's more interesting. It's more compelling. People are going to share if we argue and we tear each other apart and we call each other names and we did it. But consensus, like finding compromise, like building solutions, that's not sexy in 2024, right? right and so right. how do we make that sexy again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that you and I are going to be able to do that. There's a lot of people talking, a lot of people filling the space and there's lots of noise, but like, what are the real solutions? And that's what I want. And, and what I say to fellow, my fellow um, people who work in the DEI space is like, you know, our goal is to talk ourselves out of a job, right? Our goal is to find solutions and for this to be improved, to improve the overall condition, to add something to the discourse that improves the overall condition, right? And so I, I don't believe that any of this is permanent. I believe that, you know, we have inherited this great, big, beautiful house with great bones. And it's our turn to remodel the bathroom and the kitchen. And, and that, that's it. It's our work to write the next chapter of the American story. What's it going to say? A rehash of chapter nine? No, thank you. Right. Like, so, so it's like, what is the actual work that we're doing today? But I will say there are always going to be people who are committed to the status quo. Right. Mm-hmm. I love to see people quote Martin Luther King. I, I love it. I love it. They're all quoting Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King, when he died, had a 67% disapproval rate. <laughs> like people did not like what he was saying. He was given a Nobel Prize outside of the United States. He wasn't given prizes inside of the United States. So I think that we have to understand that this is challenging work that people are going to be resistant to, but it's important work. And quite frankly, I wish everyone did it. Like there is kind of a feeling that it's only minorities. It's only women that care about this work. And it's like, no, we all need to care about how we move this ball forward. Um, and, and, and if we can do that and we really process ourselves of, as having a shared destiny, I really think that's a part of the problem. It's, it's, we talk about this like us and them, as if we're sitting in the back of the boat, laughing at the people in the front of the boat because they have a hole in their end of the boat. <laughs> like y'all are in the same boat. You know, yeah. the boat is sinking, right? Like, yeah. and, and if we could figure out that shared destiny piece, we'd be focused on solutions instead of arguing. There's yeah. no value in the constant back and forth. People send me stuff all the time, Mike. Oh, can you believe that this person said this? And Charlie Kirk said he would be scared <laughs> of a blah, blah, blah. And I just, you know, like, uh, I just yes. can't. They're, I can't merchant, but- they're merchants of discord. Yes. That's what they are. And, yes. it's, and, and it's telling that uh, discord is one of our uh, primary ways of communicating now. Yeah. But and so I, let me give you a compliment. Yes. Like, I love that you're actually reading the research. You're actually asking the hard questions. You're reading it and you're contemplating it and considering it, considering it for yourself. Like, I wish more people would do that and come to the table with suggestions and ideas. Um, I think we will get so much further. 
Well, thank you. And I'll give you a compliment too, which is that you're very good at facilitating conversations. And also you put out um, excellent thought provoking work. So I just want to thank you for all that. And I am salute. I guess does everyone say they're solution oriented? Does everyone tell themselves that? That's all. That's my entire self-conception. That if it was the, if the problem would be solved by um, everyone, I don't, I, I don't want to be ridiculous, but everyone signing a compelled DEI pledge. If that got us 5% of the way towards the solution, I'd be all in favor of it. Yeah. But since I don't think of that as the solution, I'm opposed to it. And then when I think that there are other things that could be the solution, like the real crux of some of these issues are being subsumed by a discourse that might be somewhat true or interesting, but not as solution oriented about racism and get frustrated. Well, let me let me add to that too. Like this process, the whole what we call DEI because the, the definition changes I think every day. Yeah. is also shaped by what I think is ridiculous metrics, right? We pick metrics we can put in the board report. Mm-hmm. They pick metrics, you know, and 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 how I think about this is like let's I don't know how you have metrics around a value. And that's really the problem that we're having. Let's say I'm going to rate motherhood, mm-hmm. right? You're a good mother. You feed your kids. You put a roof over their head. You, you know, you pick five metrics. You could be killing it, knocking it out the park in every single one of those metrics. If you beat your kid half to death every night, you're not a good mother. Right. And so we, we tend, especially in corporate environments, to pick these like really easy metrics and the things that, that's how you get the sign the statement in the brochure and agree to the values. And, and we put it in our, we put it in our brochure in, in the corporate um, report that we, we added this to our value list. Like these things feel like activity. Mm-hmm. Right. But are they actually moving the, the needle forward? So so I agree with you that we get um, a focus. It's always easy to add a couple, you know, holiday potlucks and uh, employee <laughs> resource groups. We can always right. add stuff on right. top on top of what we're doing, it's much harder to go deeper and change what we're doing, right? And and so there's a temptation to kind of get stuck in the silliness or the the trivialities that you're that what I hear you responding to. But I, I also in, invite you to consider that that is that's also a shaping of this conversation. Like there's stuff that I would go into a corporation. I would change tomorrow. They're not going to let me change that, you know, Mm -hmm. like, because they, we all have these Holy grails and this is the way we actually do things. And this is how this is, this is the, the, you know, the company way kind of thing. So I think that, that even the, the efforts that you see people putting forth, sometimes they're the only efforts that are allowed. And people kind of grab onto them as at least, okay, we have something and next year we'll get something else. And so this is a a long arc of history that I think we have to um, understand that there, there is no light switch. So these things that feel really trivial and ridiculous are sometimes like somebody's been working 10 years to even get that, <laughs> to even get that step forward. And we need to kind of respect, I guess, that process if that makes sense. 
And that is Denise Hamilton, DEI expert and author of the book, Indivisible, How to Forge Our Differences into a Stronger Future. Very much enjoyed the conversation. I think we actually, you know, tweak, not outright change each other's opinions. Pesca Plus subscribers will get to hear my final question for her about a reference she made to the Holocaust in her new book. She talked about how the Jehovah's Witnesses who perished in the Holocaust aren't noted nearly as much as the Jews are. But I get into numbers because it's uh, 6 million versus about 1,700. And I do wonder why a special point was being made to say, you know, the Jews were in the majority, but just barely in the majority of people killed by the Nazis during the Holocaust. I think, not just depending on how you count, but if you have an honest counting, this is not the case. So why put it in a book about differences being our strength? You'll find out about it. If you are Pesca Plus subscribers, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get the show without ads and with extra segments and other bonuses. You can try it for a limited time. Subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Joe Biden is old and forgetful. We know this. The GOP, Donald Trump, emphasize it all the time. He doesn't do a lot of media appearances. When he does, he doesn't always screw up, but he frequently has a moment of forgetfulness or lack of clarity. Two days ago, this happened. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement, there's been a response from the, uh, the, the there's been a response from the opposition but um, it, it, yes I'm sorry from Hamas but it seems to be uh, a little over the top and even when newscasters are trying to find an example of Joe Biden making his own case for a good economy they're forced to cut to a clip where his case is impeded by his slurred speech or stilted syntax. They had to work hard to show patience and be willing to travel over a thousand miles. You could say even this harder than getting a, a ticket to the Renaissance tour or, or, or Britney's tour. She's down in, it's kind of warm in Brazil right now. And yet somehow... With ample videographic evidence of this tendency to forget, a written report by the special counsel, Robert K. Herr, attesting to President Biden's forgetfulness, was placed into a different category of evidence. Special counsel Herr looking into and ultimately declining to charge Biden with improper document storage, went on to note, quote, We have also considered that at trial, Mr. Biden would likely present himself to a jury, as he did during our interview of him, as a sympathetic, well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. Okay, I took from this that when Biden wants to come across as forgetful, he certainly can come across as forgetful. Also, we all know when he doesn't want to come across that way, he sometimes does too. But Robert K. Herr was noting, and perhaps intentionally insulting Biden, Robert K. Herr, being an anagram of hurt broker, was noting that the prosecution would have a tough time with a witness who is frustratingly vague, but also sympathetic while being so. It is a true prosecutorial dilemma 
In other words, Joe Biden beautifully achieved what Vincent Gigante never could as he wandered around Little Italy in a bathrobe in trying to establish incompetence. Scranton Joe won, Vinny the Chin nil. But no, this phrase, well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory, aside from being an obvious nod to Pearl Jam's elderly woman behind the counter in a small town, became a political tempest, the likes of which I, and certainly Joe Biden, can't remember. It's a five-alarm fire. The White House scrambled the forget jets and went to forget con one. And so Joe Biden stepped out in prime time and addressed America, not with the intent of demonstrating his mental acuity, but with the very subject, I possess mental acuity. And in doing so, he committed quite a couple of mental gaffes demonstrating his lack of mental acuity. As you know, initially, the president of Mexico, Sisi, did not want to open up the gate to allow humanitarian material to get in. I talked to him. I convinced him to open the gate. I talked to Bibi to open the gate on the Israeli side. I've been pushing really hard, really hard, to get humanitarian assistance in. Biden should have just person, woman, man, camera, TV'd it and be done with it. But... No, he didn't. And we have to note that El Sisi is the president of Egypt. I mean, Egypt and Mexico, they both border an area of U.S. interest. In Mexico's case, the U.S. In Egypt's case, Gaza. Uh, they each have an eagle on the flag. They're, they're hot in summer. They got pyramids. Third letter of each one is one of the last three letters in the alphabet. That's quirky. Basically, I'm saying they're the same place. So is Joe Biden. Give the guy a break. But a break he was not given. Those several news networks cried foul that it would be noted that an elderly and frequently memory-challenged person was elderly and frequently cognitively challenged. The guy knew. He's a Trumper who knew. Right. So why in the world, why in the world would, would the Justice Department allow that dicta to be in there? It's gratuitous. Well, and, and he knows it's gratuitous, yeah. and it was bad faith. It was bad faith that he did it, and it was even and it was even worse judgment that the Justice Department allowed that garbage to be released. I half expected MSNBC to annoyingly point out the original phrase was well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. What about well-meaning? Why don't you go on about how well-meaning he is? Totally ignored the well-meaningness of it. I couldn't really figure it out. I, alone among the media, the Republicans, the White House, I think everyone else in America, I could not figure out why this phrase in a report, an exculpatory report, took on so much more significance than all the other evidence that we always see attesting to the general accuracy of the phrase. Is it that it was written down? Have we been ignoring the power of the written word? Three to five days a week, he goes out on camera, forgets something, but someone writes it down. And it's so important. Is it that the phrase comes from an unbiased observer? I would argue against that by noting that Robert K. Hur is not an unbiased observer. He was a Trump appointee. Okay, fair enough. A lot of people pointing that out also. But also, we are all somewhere on the continuum of biased to unbiased. And if you took any sort of sample or just all of America who've all seen Joe Biden and asked them, do you sometimes see a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory? I think everyone, if they were being honest or didn't have a totally shattered memory, would say, yeah, yeah, we see that. We see that quite a lot. In fact, it's kind of the guy's brand. There's no one in the White House or in Biden's inner circle actually 
actually see him as sometimes being a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. So when he says, I got to get out there and rebut this, fellas, do none of his advisors say, maybe just to each other, well, you know, it is kind of true. I I don't know. I'm not there in the sanctum sanctorum. Does day in and day out, Joe Biden regale staff with intricate details of missile silo locations and specific sections of the tax code precisely cited, well-annotated speeches that were given by his Senate colleagues in 1978? Does he come in with the exact dates precisely matching the congressional record? So to hear someone dare accuse him of memory slips, do they say, that is not the Joe Biden I know. This is a calumny that cannot go unaddressed. And while well-meaning, elderly man with a poor memory does not encapsulate the essence of Joe Biden, is he, in his day-to-day activities, something glaringly the opposite of a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory? Like, it's got to come up from time to time. No, Mr. President, that was in 2009. No, Mr. President, I think you mean Afghanistan. It comes up with me. I'm a well-meaning middle-aged man with a pretty good memory, but no, honey, you left the keys on the table. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners of The Gist, I have to admit, I feel bad. I feel bad about all of this. I feel personally bad, not for making fun of Joe Biden or giving the Republicans or Dean Phillips sucker, (laughs) but it's just this. I'm supposed to give you some extra insight. Uh, I can do it by unearthing a fact or providing a framing, or turning a phrase, or just making you see an insight anew. That's kind of what the role of the gist is. I cannot do any of that when it comes to the charge of Joe Biden being a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. I can only express my own befuddlement, a Scrantonian befuddlement, you might say, about how this became the big kerfuffle that it did. Okay, you got dinged by Robert Kehoe. My advice would be to move on and forget it, which should be pretty easy for Joe Biden. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. They are the quaint mallards. Want to know why? I'm not saying. I think I may have forgot. Michelle Pesca is the chief reminder of Peachfish Productions. To advertise on The Gist, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Umperu, Peru, du Peru. Hey, 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 thanks for listening. Don't forget, I appreciate you.